Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Poldoyan. So a couple weeks ago on episode 53, um, I had Ricky Taylor of Altamarfa give us a quick update on his winery. And after having that talk, I thought how good it would be for us to showcase another Texas winery here on the pod. Because I mean, you know, Texas is a big state and it's one of the fastest growing wine regions here in the U.S. And Altamarfa represents just one piece of that. And that's why we're going to talk to Cooper Anderson and Adrian Ash of the Austin Winery today. Cooper co-founded the winery seven years ago, and Adrian joined the team first to run the tasting room and eventually became the assistant winemaker. Now, Adrian makes amphora-matured wines under her own label, Ash Wines. I caught up with them last week, actually on Cinco de Mayo, um, to discuss Texas viticulture, the process of canning wine, and some of their recent projects like an Amaro Spritz and the newest vintage of their Paquette. Um, and full disclosure, guys, I had some really shitty Wi-Fi issues that I was working through, so the audio isn't 100%. Um, one day I'll do the pod in Dolby Digital Surround Sound. It'll be like some THX, like OVO40, like super quality audio or something like that. But y'all don't listen to this for pristine audio fidelity. You're here for the wine talk, right? I'd like to think so. Well, anyways, we'll get after it. Here's Adrian and Cooper. But all good. I appreciate you guys being here. Short notice on Cinco de Mayo to hang out with me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> and you guys just came off of your uh, seventh birthday, right? Mm-hmm. Seven years old. So that mm-hmm. puts you in second grade, right? I think so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. yeah. I don't know enough to disagree. I was like, I forgot what age I was. <laughs> I think seven years old is second grade, I think. But um, I bought a couple of y'all's wines and I'm happy to open both or just one. I figured we could chat about them on pod, yeah. but um, I have the Paquette, which I think was the OG Paquette. Okay. It's the one that's got uh, grapes as well as cider in it. And then mm-hmm. I also have the Tempranillo Nuevo. I picked Smart. both of them up from the local Whole Foods. So we can chat about both because I know you released a new Paquette. All right, cool. I've got a little Paquette here. Nice. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. All right. How many how many times do you get people that just like drink it straight out of the can or most of the time shotgunning it versus like into glass? Yeah, is that is that the move? Yeah. All right, solid, cool. It does have some tartrates uh, and some sediment that have settled to the bottom of it, so that can that last sip can be a little bit gritty, cool. But um, you know, for the most part, yeah. If you decant it, good. Some Scooby snacks is I think what we called it back in college. Yeah, flavor crystals. No, it smells great. This is awesome. This was bottled in 2019. Yeah. Right. Yes, and that was our our first try at the can conditioning of Piquet, um, which has been you know Piquet and just those more kind of alternative adventurous styles are really something that we've been after trying to make wine accessible, fun, interesting. One, because it satisfies our own curiosity as constant tinkerers, but two, every vintage, you know, we don't have vintage consistency here. So, you know, making something fun and approachable like that, rather than, you know, trying to just say like, hey, we're nailing down a style year after year is is kind of the ethos for us. That's obviously something I think about a lot. The frost that we get, you know, the shitty weather, the really hot summers that we have, and I don't know, I imagine that plays a super big role with what you guys do, because it seems like there's a lot of different SKUs that are coming out. 
And how much of that is based on like vintage stuff versus like just creatively, we want to do different things. I, I would say equal parts, Yeah. equal parts. Um, yeah. One thing, especially with regard to what you're drinking right now, Piquette, we actually come out with two of them every year. I'll grab the other one real quick, like. Hell yeah. Um, so we will typically do two runs of Piquette, uh, one in bottle and one in can. We are firm believers in the can, by the way. You know, vast majority of people. It seems like that. You've got a lot of canned stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're really hoping that the market latches onto it and takes canned wine seriously because as I'm sure for you, like as a Psalm, you know, especially these days, the quality of the packaging is not indicative of the quality of the wine uh, or the style of the packaging. Mm -hmm. So there are plenty of really bad wines that get put in cool bottles and, and vice versa. But um, we do two piquettes every year. We, we love the cans for environmental purposes um, and for portability purposes. Most people that live in Austin live in apartments and they want to be able to take a, a wine-based beverage down to the poolside and stuff like that. And it's typically not allowed when they're in glass and cork. Same goes for any public parks here in town. So we want to have something available for, for folks that are on the go a little bit and who want to, you know, portion out their wine a little bit more and be a little bit more environmentally responsible. But uh, the two piquettes that we do, what you're drinking now is essentially a piquette made from the last picks of the year. So for us, that was Tempranillo and Montepulciano in 2019. Um, and in 2019, the first picks that we did, that was Syrah and Sangio. Yes. Yeah, that was just Syrah and Sangio. We didn't pick Gruner until 2020, uh, but still same bottle. Um, so the first pick of the year, we'll make a small run in 750 milliliter uh, glass and crown cap. And then at the end of the year, we'll do a larger run. Once we have tank availability, harvest flow has, has kind of worked itself out in the cellar um, and maximized production on a larger run of the last varieties that we've taken in for the year. I love it. I love it. I mean, that was always the idea behind Piquette, right? Is it was something for the people working at the winery to drink. Like if we go back historically, yeah. the idea was that it was just a crushable, easy drinking, like mm -hmm. alternative to beer or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Before there was White Claw, there was Piquette. Yeah. Yeah. This is true. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a, something great, accessible for you know agricultural workers, you know people traveling, just working in vineyards, uh, stuff like that. They could uh, upcycle a waste product and produce relatively free booze from you know, from their environment so i don't know if they were floating the river with cans of it back then though like they yeah. are now yeah but not, not like they are yeah it's true <laughs> <laughs> well before we get too further along maybe we can introduce you both yeah uh, my name's adrian uh, ash i moved to texas probably about seven years ago um, and really got into the wine industry uh, because of working at a restaurant. So I got really into the wine menu there, uh, started to help my coworkers with creating like a cheat sheet uh, so they can sell their wines a little bit better. And I thought maybe I could make this a career for me. So I showed up at the guy's door uh, and said I would run their tasting room if they just taught me how to make wine. And yeah, so I ran their tasting room uh, and slowly started to get more and more into the cellar work. And uh, yeah, I uh, am now a winemaker now and a part shareholder in the Austin Winery. And um, I focus on winemaking using amphoras. Right now, the winery has three amphoras and I've made 
two wines so far, and I have two more in the works that I'm going to sell in the near future once they're labeled up and ready to go. But yeah, I just, uh, it's mostly, so the winery kind of lets us do this. We call it the collective. I think we might change the name though soon. Yeah, there's there's some confusion about, there are now two other labels in Texas that carry that name collective. So we're going to shift the branding on that in a little bit, but anyway. But yeah. generally, yeah. The, the idea is that um, the people that work at the winery get the creative ability to make their own wines. Mm. Um, under their own label. Under their own label. Yeah. Um, and so my label is Ash Wines, and my you know uh, focus is more on Infora Wines uh, and just kind of specialty Texas fruit with, mm -hmm. with that. So, yeah. <laughs> so maybe like a less of a commercial, uh, custom crush where people can kind of come together and work on things, share kind of within the infrastructure of the Austin winery, right? It would that kind of be how you describe it? it? Yeah. in you know, it shares a lot in spirit with, with older, you know, co-ops essentially, you know, um, in that we're sharing space, sharing equipment and everything like that. But we want each label to have total total autonomy um, over what they produce um, and invite experimentation, which Adrian has totally embraced with deciding to invest in these amphoras. And it's benefited both of us quite a bit. Oh, hang tight one sec. We had some customers walk in. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All good. <laughs> yeah, we just forgot to lock the doors. Yeah, I can lock that right now. <laughs> oh, that's good. Customers are a good thing, right? Maybe while maybe while Adrian's doing that, you can uh, walk me through this seventh birthday party that you guys had, how you guys celebrated. Yeah. So for our seventh birthday, we had our friends from Curry Boys Barbecue in San Antonio come up, uh, serve up some delicious rice bowls with curry and uh, real American smoked meats. You know, in a, in a fun setting, we put a little bit of a discount on some of our, our cans of wine and some of the more fun styles to kind of grease people's wheels on them and, and get somebody to try them that might not ordinarily. One of the things that's inherently difficult for us as a small producer in doing something like canned wine, it is historically a segment of the market where your cheapest juice and thus your cheapest wines are going to be put in that kind of packaging and that's not what we do. Our wines are $13 a can, which a lot of people look at and, and kind of scoff, but that's two and a half glasses of wine that would be, and it's a 375 milliliter can. So that would be a $26 bottle of wine. And we stand by the quality of what's in that can all day as, as worth 26 bucks per 750 milliliter. So, I see no no reason it can't be $13 for a half bottle. You had mentioned earlier, right, that, you know, part of the idea behind canning, right, is that it's a wine that you can take with you to float the river, hang out in a space where maybe glassware isn't as encouraged. So maybe more casual consumption. Yeah. Are there any other like things that play into whether or not a wine goes into a can versus into a bottle in terms of like the way in which it was matured or anything like that, or the flavor profile, like do you taste something in barrel or in tank where you're like, man, this is going to be a canned wine, or this is going to be a bottled wine. Like what's kind of the vibe there? Yeah. You know, the, the can is a very inert container. It does not allow a whole lot of room for oxygen or for change uh, in the same way that glass and cork will, where you will have slow diffusion of oxygen through the cork that will interact with the wine and, 
know, cause certain development and aging in the wine. Um, so for, for one, for us, like we don't filter. So we have to make sure everything that's going into can is fully malolactic, you know, it's completely dry. Any kind of changes that would produce carbonation, especially the wine has already undergone by the time it goes into the can. Uh, two, it's one that we don't want to interact with a whole lot of oxygen. Um, so they're generally lighter, brighter, fresher styles, fun, early to market reds, earlier picked higher acid whites. The rosé is a little bit more of a kind of a paradox because it's actually a skin fermented rosé in the way. It's the pink salt is not really even a rosé categorically. It's actually a, a blush wine. It's a, a blend of carbonic macerated Grenache with skin fermented Albarino and barrel fermented Pico Blanc. So again, although it is in a very, very casual kind of understated packaging, it is technically speaking, got a lot going on for it on the winemaking side. Yeah, that's a wild combination of things. That's a crazy yeah. sapage you got going on in there, yeah, right? for sure. And that's not the only wine that you do a, a combo of skin contact white with a little bit of red, right? There's a whole lot of kind of like cool blends that you're working on at the winery, right? Yeah, big time, big time. And that kind of goes back to, again, we're kids in a candy shop right now in Texas in that uh, especially the High Plains has over 70 different varieties planted you know so growers up there are really ambitious and are really adventurous so we have a wide variety of to choose from and every year is different i mean for me like making wine in texas now for seven years what is a normal year there is no normal year it's really you know we try our best to embrace the spirit of the year, but there is no, there's no mark of consistency here. <laughs> that's, that's not the goal. Yeah. So I was going to say like, what are some, what are some crazy things that you've had to deal with over the past seven years? What are some of the challenges that you deal with on a regular basis? On a regular basis, some of the, the climatic challenges that we deal with here in the hill country are high disease pressure. We are definitely on the, uh, the, the, you know, the edgier side of, our ambient humidity, molds, mildews, funguses, and stuff like that are prevalent here. So they, they can be very aggressive if not kept in check in the vineyard. And then the High Plains, which produces the vast majority of the state's winemaking grapes, they are constantly under threat from hail. They had hail just yesterday and in, uh, in Brownfield, just south side of- Shit. They had hail in on Cinco de Mayo or on Cuatro de Mayo? Yeah, on yeah, May the 4th? On, on May the 4th, yeah. Um, so Brownfield, the southern part of Brownfield, which is has some of the largest vineyards, uh, like BJ Reddy's vineyard is there. It's over 300 acres, um, is in Brownfield. Um, luckily, he's not on the south side of town because it got totally crushed. Uh, he's more on the sort of on the eastern portion, if I remember my geography right. Um, and we have a Senso vineyard that's there that's on the, on the eastern edge of town as well. That they, they got a mix of smaller hail and rain, which is also very very rare for them so for, for the hill country it's the spring frost the high disease pressure like those are two things every year that you're going to have to deal with for the high plains it's you know spring frost can still happen uh, they're a little bit less common than they are uh, maybe here in the hill country um, but the hail is really you know is a constant threat especially later on into the season getting close into harvest time when when hurricane activity and that upper atmosphere, high pressure and, and moisture systems are really, really active. Those things are always a threat. Kind of jumping back a little bit, right? Like 
you started the winery seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And at that point in time, like what were the relationships you guys had to different farmers, different grape growers around the state? Cause I'm sure seven years in now you've developed relationships, but what was it like on that front end where you're just kind of like essentially cold calling, doing what Adrian was doing, you know, just knocking on a door and being like, Hey, what's up? Yeah. I don't know. What was that like? What was that experience like trying to find fruit initially? It was exactly that. It was, it was cold calling people, to a certain extent, not a lot has changed. We are still a very relationship-driven industry in that regard. You know, our, you know, our relationships have, have changed, but it's still amazing that many of these contracts that we have for fruit, things still kind of go by on sort of a handshake deal. A lot of that is because of the volatility of our industry. You know, we have been like years that where the vineyard is fat and the, the crop load is huge. And then there's years where there might be absolutely nothing. But to start off with, you know, we hit up our, you know, the larger farms that we knew might be okay. And, you know, with, uh, you know, shaving off a ton or two for, for this guy here, like, that's no big deal. I'll almost certainly have that left over, you know, even, even if I'm fully committed, you know, if, if the crop ends up a little bit heavier, then you can get a little bit sure. And we've spent the last seven years now driving those relationships to the point where now we have... You know, we have one vineyard in the High Plains and then two vineyards here in the Hill Country that grow all their varieties, 100% of their tonnage goes exclusively for us. And with the way that we've shifted our winemaking from conventional textbook recipe driven style to your quote, you know, natural wine or low intervention style where we do less, those relationships mean everything because it means we have the best information about the quality and, and the chemistry of the fruit, you know, and we have say in farming practice, which is another thing that, that means a lot to us to, to be more involved, you know, and, and pick time, you know, somebody that has 300 acres where I'm taking half a ton, they're just like, well, you know, these guys over here are taking almost all of it. So whenever it comes off, that's when you get your half ton. But with the way that we make wine now, where we're trying to manipulate as little as possible, the pick day is everything. Pick Day has locked in essentially the quality of the wine and how it is going to be that year, barring us fucking something up in the cellar. So that's what every winemaker likes to say is that the vineyard gives us great fruit, and our job as winemakers is to not fuck it up. Exactly. Yeah. Hopefully, (laughs) talk to winemakers in Spain, Italy, France, Germany, and they'll tell you that. Like, our job is to just not blow it. So, yeah. And we've, I feel like we've fucked up less every year that's gone by, which is great. (laughs) So that means that we're understanding a little bit more about about growing grapes in Texas. We're understanding a little bit more about our market and we're understanding a little bit more about you know the flow of things in the cellar. Well, what I want to know then is tell me about one of the big fuck ups from year one or year two. What were some of the big things that you like learned from where you're like, oh shit, can't do that again? Or you, oh, you, that did not work. Um, well, I've, I've definitely, one thing that I've fucked up a lot on is just not understanding when your fermentation is finished right? I don't have a laboratory. We are very organoleptically driven when it comes to that. Like, sure, I measure pH and, and TA and and, uh, and SO2 and stuff like that, but that's pretty much it. Like everything else, we're going by old school floating hydrometers to measure gravity and things like that. And, you know, it used to be that I would try to make these non-malolactic styles of, of of white wine with a touch of RS to them market, like really like, you know, mass market appealing things without all the tools necessary to 
achieve that style in a professional manner, meaning I would not filter well, you know, I would clog up filters or it wasn't filtered properly or tightly enough to, to really lock in the styles that I wanted. So plenty of unexpected bottle refermentations. You went through so many filters too. <laughs> yeah, I hate them. They don't. <laughs> so I'm so glad we don't fuck with filters anymore. Um, to be honest, they're, they're a waste of money. Oh, sorry. Hopefully none of the filter guys are going to hear this. Um, big filter out there. We know you're listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, literally Team I, the other day I have a very expensive lenticular filter just sitting, sitting in like a shipping container in our parking lot. And so I've just been hitting up, you know, breweries in the area, people making, you know, more filtered products that be like, Hey, you might be interested in this. So, so yeah, but, you know, we put plenty of stuff I have, I should say, I should fall on that sword. Um, I have put plenty of stuff in bottle that had no business going into bottle yet. Um, and then, you know, it doesn't end there. Like this is a lifetime of education that I've signed up for. Um, and we're making different styles all the time. I hate to say this, but you're in a way you're drinking one of the mistakes that I made right now. And that is with the first vintage of the canned piquette. What we do is, you know, when we make piquette, we take uh, grape pumice, uh, macerated and pressed grape skins, put them back in the tank. We fill the tank with water to extract trace amounts of alcohol, small amounts of color, flavor, aroma, and things like that. And then we need to find a sugar source. We need to reignite our fermentation in order to make it sparkling. One of the things that I did was when we picked that Montepulciano, I cleaned a couple of carboys, I sauteed off a little bit of juice, I stuck that juice into a, a, like a, I went and bought a freezer from Home Depot and I stuck a couple of carboys full of juice in there and, you know, thought like everything is set, like, let's go, you know? So the piquette is essentially steeping because it's, it's basically, I try to describe it to people as grape tea. So the, the water and grape skins are soaking together. I press them off, you know, all, all that's left to do is I have my canning day set with, with my, my mobile canner. Um, and then I need to time adding my sugar back so that I don't do it too early and lose that, lose that sugar to, to re-fermentation, thus producing a under carbonated or a non-carbonated product. I had canning day set, you know, 8 a.m., uh, 4 a.m. rolls around. I duck into the winery. I take my, you know, I take my carboys out of the freezer and I start to thaw them. Well, it takes, always takes longer than you think it's going to. To, to unfreeze something, especially when it's that thick, you know, it's, it's sugar solution, not only that, but you know, in, in, a, in a big old bucket, it's just a, a dense chunk of ice that'll take a long time to thaw all the way through. Took it out of the freezer and I start to chip away at it to just encourage it to, encourage it to, to defrost. You're describing me on a Saturday night at one in the morning, munchies are kicking in and i'm trying to open that ben and jerry's it's frozen solid and i'm just trying to scoop it out like yeah. that's me right there yeah, yeah. We're, we're in the same boat hopelessly yours hope is a little more high pressure but yeah <laughs> hopelessly hacking away at it that, that it'll get to where we want it to be yeah middle of it where all of, where our, you know we had a bunch of concentrated grape juice was still unfrozen despite being in the freezer for months and was very slightly and slowly fermenting. And then two hours later, it had defrosted almost none. And so I, I run home and I steal two hair dryers from my girlfriend. I haul those car boys underneath a chair. I duct tape my hair dryers to a chair, turn them on, trying to thaw this juice. 
blasting it with hot air, with hot air. The guys set up their canning line. They're just kind of like scratching their heads and staring yeah. at me being a crazy person. Pause blow, for blow a second. Yeah. So when I show up and I see Cooper and he has carboys and hair dryers blowing on these carboys, you're just like, oh, fuck, what is happening right mm. now? <laughs> yeah. So I'm, Yeah, this is not good. Not ideal. It's not how I pictured it going yeah. down. But, you know. In winemaking, you make your your damage control. You make the best of a bad situation. Yeah. So I keep hacking away at it, you know, letting the heat do its thing to thaw this juice. I finally get it thawed. takes takes a few hours, of course. I add it into tank. Um, well, I have a very 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 small pump, and I hook that pump up to a pretty large tank, and I'm pumping from my bottom valve back up over to the top of the tank into the, the top uh, manway. And I didn't mix it well enough. And my slightly slushy mega stratified solution of ice and sugar, grape juice, you know, fallen out the, the heavier sugars that which were congealed had fallen to the mm -hmm. tank and did not get homogenized. So the amount sugar that I thought was going into can for every can was not going to be consistent. So I pump it over for a couple of minutes, you know, still naive to that at this point. Um, and we get to canning, start to canning, everything goes according to plan. Uh, well, four or five days roll around and, you know, we walk in, you know, we're sitting here having our morning coffee and we start to hear pop, pop. So my sugar solution that had fallen to the bottom of the tank was, of course, the first thing to be drawn off by the canning line pump and put into can. So those had a tremendous, tremendous amount of, of sugar to re-ferment and produce a lot of carbonation. So the cans swelled and burst. Um, so the first, it turns out, you know, to make a long story short, about the first 25, 30 cases of a 440 can run had it much more sugar than the rest of the bottling or canning run. And so they started to swell and burst and we had to throw those out. So we should have ended up with more, more grape juice and thus more carbonation and more flavor in ultimately in our, our finished product, but we came out slightly under carbonated, but we learned a lot. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got it. You got to, pluck a lot of bad strings in order to play a song, learn the guitar, right? So I, yeah. I don't know. It's tasting good. Yeah. Paquette 2.0 is out and about, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, this is tasting really good as is. And I'm going to pour myself a little bit of the Tempranillo Nuevo now. Try a little bit of sure. that guy. Because this yeah. is 2020 vintage, right? Yes. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. I'm going to pour That one, you know, we had actually, that one's another one. Like we had actually been putting out a, a nouveau style since 2015 every year on, on the dot on third Thursday of November. And almost nobody ever gave a shit. <laughs> Why is that you think? Um, They're too busy fucking I with mean, the Like they just like, they, the prism through which they see nouveau is just for that one thing. Yeah. If they even knew about that style, it was through bouge nouveau and that's what they wanted. Like they're all not interested in, doing that with Tempranillo. That's just weird and strange. Um, so this year we were a little bit more patient in, you know, in coming out with our Nouveau. We actually, we bottled it up in time and everything, but we didn't release it on the third Thursday of November that we normally do. And then suddenly it seems like people find 
gave a shit this year. <laughs> and we kind of <laughs> kind of missed the mark marketing wise, but I stand by the wine. Yeah, I mean if it's a if it's a truly good wine and it tastes good, then it doesn't matter what day it comes out, you know, then it'll taste good regardless and it'll resonate with No, it's tasting really fun. It's got yeah. It's like really like red fruited. There's a really fun kind of like mm-hmm. interplay of earth and fruit, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. What's it like working in an urban winery? Because you're getting fruit from so far away and getting it to the winery, which is in South Austin, what's that like transportation and logistics system like getting fruit from so many different parts of Texas, which listeners know Texas is a really big fucking state and you're getting fruit from all over. It's hours and hours driving the fruit to the winery. What's that like? What's kind of the logistics there? Yeah, I mean, it sucks. Um, (laughs) uh, And, you know, for, for any listeners that don't, already know this about wine, you know, we're making 100% of our product over the span of a couple of weeks for, for that year. Um, and so is every other winery in the state. And there's only so many refrigerated trucks to go around that will drive into the middle of the high desert of, of, you know, Northwest Texas and truck a couple of things, 300 plus miles, 350 miles, um, you know, Southeast down to Austin for you. So, a lot of jockeying for a position to line your truck up in time because to circle back to what I mentioned earlier, pick day for us is everything. We're not, we're not adding acid. So we're, we're, we're picking for a particular acidity level. We're not adding sugar. We don't ameliorate. Um, so, you know, locking in those flavors is really a matter of when did we, when did we harvest it? And so harvest logistics play as much of a, a role in, in that, um, as, as, you know, frankly, as, as seller practice does. Um, so yes, we've had situations in the past, where there's been miscommunication with the trucks and they didn't show up or, you know, and then you got to wait X number of days because, well, he's running fruit for the other one of one of the other 450, 500, you know, wineries in the state of Texas for the next 10 days. And then, you just hope that your fruit chemistry can hang on. Like that's definitely happened in the past. Um, luckily, we're a little bit more proactive, uh, you know, than we had been, and you know, we're we're picking larger amounts. That's a little bit more attractive, which means a larger bill for the truck, which influences where he'll be and when. Sometimes, um, I mean, he's making a business decision too. Yeah. Pick time, pick time is everything and getting the fruit to the winery, uh, you know, on a refrigerated truck, might I add, is, is very important because, of course, we're picking here in, in West Texas in, in August, you know, end of July through the you know, middle of September. It's very, very, very hot. Um, so we want to keep the fruit cool and in good condition and, until it gets to the seller. So we make sure to shell out, you know, the extra bucks to make sure the truck is refrigerated as well. No, for sure. Adrian, you work predominantly, you were talking about with clay vessels for fermentation and elevage. We were talking earlier about some of the challenges getting fermentation just right with Paquette, but what's it like dealing with a vessel like clay? I guess what attracted you to clay to begin with and what are some of the unique challenges specific to clay? Yeah, I think I was... I was really intrigued by the story about amphoras and quaveries and um, just everything behind like Georgian winemaking. And 
I, when they gave me the opportunity to make a little bit more wine, I uh, did a little more research to, you know, find a way to stand out because I was still making the, I was taking the same fruit um, from them that year. And so if I did the same practices and styles, the fruit would fairly come out the same um, depending um, on what I was doing. But um, yeah, I found uh, one amphora through a uh, winemaking supply store, uh, Nears Vault, which is out in Hayes County. And they had one amphora there. And I was like, okay, I'll give this a shot. The guys were like, cool, (laughs) sure. And so I just decided to give it a shot. Um, And so my first fruit I got that year was Montepulciano from a vineyard called Canted County Vineyard um, up in the Texas High Plains. And I just went with um, a conventional method of making it and made a really good wine. And I was super excited about it. And the guys got excited too. So I decided to grow from there Um, with a small profit I made off of it. I ended up purchasing two more. And yeah, the next year I decided to go with a method traditional Sangio Rosé peak pool combo. And uh, it turned out great. Um, It was a pain in the ass though. (laughs) Um, That's, I, because I'm making a smaller amount of wine, I really wanted to try a process that was harder. And it was something that um, on a larger scale would be a lot more difficult yeah, uh bad respect to the champagne houses yeah it's a pain in the ass it was a lot <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah i went with that and um did the rack and riddling um freeze disgorged uh did the whole process and the wine turned out beautifully and uh and yeah like i, I just love the process i love the way the wines taste um with amphoras, um, the the malolactic, the no um, barrel flavor at all, slight earthiness that you get from it. I think it makes beautiful wines. And with Texas fruit, it's really um, stood out for a lot of the wines that we've made through it. Mm-hmm. Um, we've made a Viognier with it, Syrah. Yeah, so I mean like amphora are something I associate very strongly with either specific producers or specific regions. And I'm curious, like for you, are do you have like a North Star, whether it's the Kevri in Georgia or Grovner and Coast in Italy or BG, Fordor even, like, like who are some of the people that you really vibe out on? Yeah, I think like people I've dr- like drawn inspiration from or is Andrew Beckham from Oregon. Um, he's the one that made um, the two um, Amphora or as he calls them, Novum Ceramics um, um, from out just outside of Portland, Oregon. So, uh, so yeah, I draw inspiration from them. He's, uh, I think he's, uh, very close or, uh, at the level of biodynamic wines too. And he does all these really fun blends out there. Um, cause when I went out there and tasted, um, he was trying, he was trying all these different styles of wine that I wasn't finding out there. He's all a state fruit, right? Yeah, yeah. all a state fruit. Um, and so, yeah, it was really inspiring. When you said you went out there to visit him, when were you there? Gosh, it has been two years ago or a year and a half ago. Something like that. Yeah, I don't uh, know. Time isn't a thing anymore. Yeah, I can't remember anything that happened during quarantine. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, last year also just like doesn't count. So yeah, no. <laughs> it's a skip. It's a skip. Yeah. Last year is a bit of a skip year, but for an urban winery, right? I imagine a big part of what you do is you're not just a place where fermentation occurs. You're also a place that hosts people, right? Um, mm-hmm. there's 
I'm, I'm sure it's meant to be kind of a convivial atmosphere where people can come together and hang out. What was that like last year during a pandemic when things are so shut down? I mean, for a lot of wineries, it's like the winery itself is next to the vineyard. So like everything is all in one place. But for y'all, what was it like being an urban winery in the midst of a citywide shutdown? Yeah, we we transitioned it a lot. I think we mostly focused on our wholesale accounts because um, yeah. we weren't focusing on that too much before uh, the pandemic. And we started, we were trying every trick in the book to try and get wine to people out here in, in Texas. We were mm-hmm. doing, we were putting wine in our cars and delivering them and, uh, you know, doing uh, like uh, socially distanced uh, pickups. Uh, we were, what else were we doing? Um, like begging and pleading. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're doing wine sales. We could mm-hmm. um, just to try and encourage people to drink at home. And yeah, because like a, a good amount of our um, profits are our tasting rooms as well. Our tasting yeah. room as well. People come in from out of town and want to try yeah. wines. So prior to prior to the pandemic, we had a luxury of being able to largely ignore the wholesale side of things because we were selling out of all of our wine almost every year in our tasting room direct to consumer, where we make the best margin, we make the best connection with the customer, you know, all those things. Um, but obviously when, you know, shit hits the fan and the government says, hey, you guys are a bar, you, you got to close, then, you know, adapt or die. Luckily, we were able to adapt, you know, and people changed their drinking habits too. So they were, they were looking, you know, rather than going out and meeting up with a bunch of friends, you know, they were looking to take a bottle home at the end of the night. So, you know, they were still going to, you know, their, their local bottle shops and, you know, looking for, uh, luckily, you know, looking and seeking out our wines. So we feel very humbled and uh, fortunate that we were able to pivot and really pick up or the wholesale side of things. So we used to do about a 90-10 ratio of direct-to-consumer to wholesale. And it's really shifted closer to about 60-40, you know, 55-45, something like that um, now. And that's and in, not- and in Texas, that's all self-distributed or are you going through a distributor for that? No, we, we are, we do some self-distro for accounts, you know, just because we are like, two miles south of downtown Austin. So, you know, there are certain accounts that we service that yeah. we do self-distro for, but the majority of our portfolio is right now carried through serendipity. Oh, word. Okay, cool. Yeah. And um, Adrian was saying the other day that you guys just got your first uh, PO from Hong Kong, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. What, yeah. what got sent over there? Was it piquette cans? Was it yeah. some yeah. Uh-huh. Arbo Tempranillo? Like what was the vibe? Both. Yeah, it was a, it was a, um, of a mixture of, I think there were five different SKUs on there. I think the person just found us through Instagram. That sounds right. I don't yeah. know that we had any prior relationship with them uh, other than they are very interested in like kind of the off the wall. We make some pretty off the wall stylistically you know, styles and, and, you know, different things that people aren't used to. One of the things I'm holding now is we have now what we call a Kawa Amaro. It's an eight ounce Amaro spritz with a red wine with botanicals added to it. Um, I saw that on y'all's website. There's uh, some coffee, right. Mm -hmm. That's added to it as well. Yeah. We teamed up with our our neighbors, uh, spokesman coffee roaster who we see twice a day, once in the morning and then another Mm -hmm. 
at lunch usually. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we've developed quite a caffeine habit on account of them, which is fine. Yeah. You've got the downers. They've got the uppers. You're good yeah. to go. Yeah. Yeah. We can level <laughs> each other. And the can has what? Like the can has what? 10 milligrams of caffeine in it, right? Yeah. Yeah. About 10 milligrams. If I, if so. I read the tech sheet, right? Yeah. But, yeah. You're yeah. correct. Um, so mm-hmm. it's not quite like four loco or buck fast or anything like that. Um, but it is. You say it like it's a bad thing. No, no, no. I, I, yeah. I guess like it was my follow-up sentence is that we drew inspiration from yeah. that. So, <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I can say I drank. Four loco for adults. Had yeah. so much energy. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you know, we, we uh, I think this person reached out to us from Hong Kong just because they saw like, hey, th- this is an emerging wine region. You know, I, I have a very adventurous and hungry market here, eager to try new things. Mm-hmm. And you guys are doing some of the more interesting things in, in the United States that we found. So they, they took a gamble on us and hopefully, hopefully it'll pay. Hell yeah. Out. Yeah. And it's really cool for me, you know, to, to call these grape growers that I have that, that live in the high plains in a, in a very, you know, hate to say it, like a very isolated kind of open environment that they're in and say, Hey, I want you to know, like, Hey, you're, you're, you're the stuff, the fruits of your labor literally are in China now, you know, and people are enjoying them in Hong Kong. They're having it with some uh, Cantonese food, some Peking yeah. duck, some yeah. uh, dim sum, some mm-hmm. quality, quality food. Yeah. It was funny when I went to Hong Kong many years ago, it was 2016. I got drinks with a guy that imports wine and we had goose, um, like, which was like duck, but on steroids from like a, just like richness standpoint, just like much yeah. more fatty. Um, and it was delicious. And we drank it with white roan. I remember that, uh, it was a okay. lot of just French wine predominantly, okay. sure. uh, that, that got consumed, but, uh, it's super cool to think about Texas wine being exported to other States. I mean, yeah. I had a buddy in Boston the other day who was like, Hey, like, what do you know about Texas wine? Our local sommelier group in Boston like wants to do an educational class on Texas wine. I was like, hell yeah. And I know like the Southhold wines are available in various markets in hmm. the East and West Coast. So mm-hmm. it's just exciting to hear people in other states beyond Texas yeah. give a shit about what we're doing here. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's the, it's the largest wine market in the world, you know? So they, they really, they have their, their, their pick of what they want. And, uh, you know, we were just flattered that they thought of us. That's dope. That's super cool. Um, is there, have you, have you traveled at all on behalf of the winery Cooper to like, I don't know, like done a market visit or anything like that. So we recently signed up, um, and are getting distribution now, um, on the West coast, which has been absolutely amazing. Damn. I don't, uh, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but you know, I just, I hear our, our district. You can make them up. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. Listeners don't know. <laughs> Fuzzy Matt. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I hear our sales and distro team talk about, you know, what placements are getting what and what volumes are going out to where. And it seems like we are selling nearly as much wine wholesale in California as we are in Texas. And that's insane. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're a huge wine market. Uh, they are probably sick of their own shit, you know, <laughs> can't stomach another Chardonnay or Pinot Noir. Um, and this will rub both markets the wrong way, but I think Texas and California have a lot more in common than either of them would care to admit, you know, agriculturally and culturally. Um, um, Expand on that, brother. What do you mean by that? 
Um, we are both very agriculturally driven states with a, a really strong sense of autonomy and, and, and self-identity. And we think, frankly, if the federal government went belly up, that we'd be fine on our own. You know, both of them. Uh, That's fair. Checks out. Large economies, diverse economies, um, and a very independently spirited peoples. I'm here for that. What else do you think we would want people to know about the Austin winery or the Texas wine market in general? Uh, yeah. What have we not discussed that you want to make sure listeners know? Yeah, um, Adrian and I are perfect examples of, of a little bit of some of the behind the scenes stuff that makes me the proudest of our brand, whether or not you even think the wine is good or cool in that uh, we are both sweat equity, mm-hmm. right? Not only that, but through through the collective umbrella and through the bond of the winery, we've been able to produce our own labels, which are are purely you know selfish expression of styles and and of wines that we want to make, and the winery allows us to sell that you know and make make residual income to supplement you know our own salary and everything like that. But we've had you know in our growth, we've had just amazing retention um, of of employees and you know people have only grown to assume more responsibilities so the number one thing that that you won't see you know when you visit is that most of the people that you you know see started their wine career here and are still here at, you know after years and years and years and they could have gone anywhere right so that's probably what I'm most proud of is that through chasing our passion in wine, we've enabled other people to do the same thing. I think that's a really important element of our industry, you know, kind of embracing that, you know, when, when one of us wins, we all win mentality, propping each other up. Cheers to that. Adrian, you said that when you started, you know, you had been working in restaurants and I don't know, when you look back on that trajectory, like what stands out most to you? I didn't think I would have a job like this that I was, that I really liked, uh, you know, by giving this a chance, you know, I, you know, I, I thought I was going to work. Well, like I loved working in the restaurant industry, but I thought I would be doing this for the rest of my life. And what kind of restaurant was it, by the way? It was an Italian restaurant. It was really cute. Made some great, um, pizzas and also buco and, um, great dishes. But, um, yeah, like I think like, uh, just taking that chance has really like transformed my life around. So I'm super thankful to be a part of the team here because I've really grown a lot, um, you know, in in this career and as a person. So, you know, kind of behind the scenes thing that a lot of folks don't get to see is that um, through the generosity of of a family down in, in Driftwood is that we've spent the the last year helping to revive a 15 acre vineyard. And so, you know, we've, we've helped them um, a couple of days a week now, you know, uh, rip up plants, put down new plants. Um, we did pruning, you know, everything, everything like that. So we are not completely removed from the vineyard. Like we still get our hands dirty and, and do a lot of work and, and put hands on the vine and, and influence it as much as we possibly can. You know, back in my my earlier days, and it's especially important for the way that we make wine now. Like I said, like the pick day is everything. Understanding the development of the of the fruit on the vine is everything. Like the flavors are locked in the second that it comes off. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's the ultimate decision. And 
it, it sucks, you know, and I can reflect on this from my first couple of years making wine, literally knowing jack shit about how grapes were grown. It sucks to just sit there in, in like, you know, March and April, I make my fruit commitments and I'm just twiddling my thumbs until August and September and the fruit comes in. And I just hope that it has the right, you know, the right chemistry and that it looks good and that we want to you know, let people know that we are very involved with our growers and you know, we help out whenever, whenever and wherever they need us to be. Hell yeah, guys. Well, I want to give you a chance to plug. Is there a website or an Instagram or anything else you want to shout out right here on the pod? Yeah, you know, uh, you know, you always do the most good if you are a conscious consumer and, you know, the goal, part of the goal of your purchase is to support the artist uh, or producer that you're buying from. You can always do the most. Yeah, good. support the homies. You got to yeah. support the homies. The, the most good is done buying directly, you know. Um, so, you know, the AustinWinery.com, we keep really detailed tech sheets on, on everything, you know, especially as we transition from conventional winemaking practice in our past to the way that we produce wine. Now people are buying more than ever based on practice, um, in America anyway. Um, and so we want to make sure, you know, full, we, are, we offer full transparency in, you know, if you say like, I only want Sansouf wines, full natty, everything, um, I got the tech sheet there with all the information to break down, you know, how, how it was grown, how it was made, and if it meets the standards for you and, and what you want uh, in that beverage. So, you know, if you go to the Austin Winery, yeah. we've got all those tech sheets with, with more information than you probably even want to know about what's going on. We're brutally honest, like <laughs> I cat earlier, so... Adrian, anything you want to shout out real quick? Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the website's the best place to check out our wines, but you can follow us on um, Instagram, the Austin Winery. Pretty simple to just see what we're up to because we'll post new wines. We'll post the thing, the events we're having. We'll keep everyone informed on, you know, what, what we're kind of doing here. We don't have Twitter. We don't do Twitter, but... <laughs> Uh, yeah, Instagram's the best way to reach us, reach out to us. And ultimately, like oh, yeah. the shout outs, like the, the number one shout out for us has to be to our grape growers. We make a point to make sure that that vineyard is on the bottle and that uh, we give credit is due because they, they take all the financial risk and subject themselves to Mother Nature for 11.9 months. And then, you know, <laughs> are, are in, in a good year, are able to get the fruit into the winery. So. You know, we hate gatekeeping and stuff like that, but I, I, I do think it's important, uh, especially in a growing industry like Texas um, and in a time, again, where people are buying based on practice a lot now to label vineyard on the bottle. Make sure you know where it's coming from. Make sure people's, eff people's efforts are honored. So, Hell yeah. Awesome, guys. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for being patient as we worked through those technical difficulties. Thank yeah. you so much for having us. Now nah, you guys crushed it. This was great. Good. This was super fun. Good. I'll catch you all Good. around. Cheers, Bye. Crystal. Thank you. See ya. That is our show. Thank you so much for listening. You can stream every episode of By the Glass on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, Google Play, Audible, wherever you get your audio content. Make sure you smash that subscribe button so that the episodes are automatically delivered to you. Um, and yeah, we'll see you with another episode next week. Thanks again.